Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And uh, I'm Al Warren, of course, back from my two-week filming vacation and then we got mr martino um back from his two-week eating vacation that's right <laughs> eating everything in sight yeah what did you do i worked um yeah <laughs> <laughs> i ate and drank jeez <laughs> oh, I, oh, I you know should have traded jobs there. You should have just I been know, me right? for the two weeks and just made it up. <laughs> I think you knew what you were talking about. It would have been great, you know. Anyway, yeah, well, you traveled. You had a had a nice working vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that later. I don't know if it was exactly uh, good traveling, but um, <laughs> it was there. It all comes back to you, you know, in one flight. It's all back to the way it was two years mm. ago. So um, let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> Starting out this whole uh, new month here, and it's uh, we've got a lot of return guests coming up this month. And uh, we start out with um, an author um, who's uh, got a book called The River Never Speaks. And that's Robert Crawford. Thanks for being here, Robert. Well, thanks for having me back, Alan. Um, well, so how's, it, how's everything been going for you since you are on the show last, Robert? Well, I haven't uh, published any books, um, any new titles anyway, and um, therein hangs another tale. I don't want to get into it, but my last publisher delisted all my titles on on signing the contract. One of the, um, let's just say, one of the conditions of the contract was that I have to sign over 
control my KDP dashboard, which I thought was kind of hinky, but I did it anyway. And then after a few months, after I got tired of their amateur hour antics, I'm not going to mention names, of course, unless you ask me, then I'll gladly tell you. When I got control of my KDP dashboard back after I broke the contract, when I got the dashboard back, it was completely bare. They delisted every single one of my titles. I had 11 books on the market, and they delisted every one of them. And they even delisted the ones that were still in progress that I hadn't had a chance to finish writing and publishing yet. So it was kind of like a you know last-minute dick move on their part, but you know it is what it is. So I, I spent most of 2021 doing a final copy edit of my books and in some cases even getting new cover art from my uh, my existing titles. And I spent most of 2021 essentially reissuing all my novels and even a short story collection. So that's what I've been doing. When, when I was on the show last, I spoke about Hollywoodland, which was is still my last issue. And um, we talked about that. And I mentioned The River Never Speaks at the tail end of my interview with you. So that's what I'd like to concentrate on right now, even though it isn't my latest title. Right, right. Well, it, yeah, that's always hard. I mean, for for writers out there, um, yeah, to give up your dashboard like that, it's very questionable. I don't know um, too many good publishers or small publishers even that, that would really request that. You have to be very careful out there. Well, up to a point, I could understand why they would want to do that. They'd want control over the dashboard so that as they reissued each of my books, they would delist them one at a time. Okay, I could understand that much, but delisting all 11 of my books plus all the incomplete projects, you know, there was no call for that whatsoever. But, you know, they'd only issued one book, Hollywoodland, the first book they bought. And, you know, they didn't tell me that it was out of the market until, you know, Easter Sunday last year, the day it came out. And I'm like, okay, that's not the way he's supposed to do it. I mean, you know, he's supposed to give me a chance to do pre-publicity, you know, rack of pre-sales, things like that. They didn't tell me the book was out until Easter Sunday, the day it came out. So, that's just one example of the kind of amateur hour antics I was talking about that led me to break my contract with them. Yeah, it's too bad um, because it, it'd be nice if a writer can just focus on their writing and, and especially when they have a publisher like that um, and let them do their job and then it works out. But, uh, you know, it, it brings a lot of stress and wastes a lot of your time, you know. Yeah, it does. Anyway, well, so now you've got uh, the, the the river never speaks. So um, let's talk about that book. So the river never speaks. Um, this is this is kind of a mystery book. Is that kind of how you classify it? You can classify it as mystery, thriller, suspense. You know, it straddles a couple of genres and subgenres. But at the heart of it all, it's really um, a psychological thriller. You know, and um, it was was actually based on a real life story. I, I mentioned this briefly at the end of my last interview with you. It's about the Jamie Claus kidnapping that happened in Wisconsin in September of uh, 2018. And then she miraculously reappeared in Gordon, Wisconsin, in, in another county on the dirt road. She was barefoot. Um, I think it was in December of 2018 when they found her. Now, the kidnapping, which was done by Jake Patterson, also involved the shotgun murders of her parents. Okay. And then he kept her under his bed and then kept her penned in using, you know, weights from his weightlifting set. And then when he was off at work one day, she just decided, okay, I'm going to make my move. And then next thing anybody knew, she just magically reappeared in Gordon, Wisconsin, and everybody was shocked. But, you know, she engineered her own escape. And this is one example of how a fascinating headline in a story can actually inspire not only a book but an entire series because the Megan McNamara, the Megan McNamara saga is actually going to be a trilogy. So that's how I got the idea for it. So so when you read a headline or see a story like that on the news somewhere 
and and it kind of a, attracts your attention. Um, what exactly is it that makes you decide I'm going to go further and write a story about this? Well, I'm a political blogger and a news aggregator, and I put up a lot of news items and news stories on my blog. And you know, I read a lot of headlines and a lot of I read a lot of stories, mainly in the political arena. But every now and then I'll read a true crime story and I'll say, hmm, maybe I can do something with this. And as I said in my last interview with you last year or the year before last, it's simply a matter of asking yourself two questions, what if and what next. And if the trick is just getting the reader to keep turning the pages. So it's like when Stieg Larsson said when he was still alive, um, somebody asked him once in an interview, how did you come up with the character Elizabeth Solander? And he said, well, in my mind, Elizabeth Solander was just a grown-up hippie longstocking. So this was my idea. What would what would Jamie Klaus be like 20 years in the future, and, and and what would she be doing? Well, a fascinating possibility is that maybe she'd be a cop, and then maybe she'd be you know she'd rise to the level of a of a, of a sheriff's deputy police detective in the same county in which she was kidnapped. And then what would happen then? Well, she'd probably want to investigate her own murder, or rather her parents' murder and her kidnapping if she was a detective and she had doubts that the guy that they put away for life was the guy who actually did it. And that was what pretty much uh, served as a springboard for the whole story. Just asking yourself what if and what next. You know, um, when you get yourself into the mind of um, a character like this, um, what do you use as a model? And I say that because um, it's inspired for someone that was real and uh, someone that actually lived and had ideas and thoughts. Do you, do you sort of go to that person or around that person and try to find out more about them, or do you create that new character just based on them and start fresh? I pretty much recreated Jamie Kloss, uh, a.k.a. Megan McNamara, because there, there really isn't any uh, real-life analog, because Jamie Kloss is still a child, of course. But I think that... Um, you know, getting to know characters is the same thing as like getting to know real people in the real world. You know, it's a process that takes a little bit of time. And I just got the impression as I was continuing with the book that, you know, she is going to be somewhat, you know, socially stunted and she's not going to have a lot of social graces. Not that she's autistic or anything, but after what happened to Megan McNamara between the ages of 13 and 18, yeah, her social skills are going to be somewhat stunted. I mean, I go into that at great depth in chapter one. But it was just a matter of just fleshing out the character as I went along. It's like, it's like you know, the ancient sculptor who found the statue beneath all that granite. You know, the statue was already there. You just have to chip away at the big parts and then the small parts to finally find the statue that you envisioned. And creating a character in a novel is pretty much the same way, and it's like getting to know a real person. I wonder, so when you... Um... In, your, in your real life, when you're doing a lot of the uh, news and political blogging and things... Does, does that influence the way you write a character as well in the story? If some aspects of a novel touch on what I write about, like, say, the mainstream media and how they do their job, there are, there are certain political overtones in the book because one of the characters is the, uh, the county sheriff, Brad Beckham. So, you know, Megan, even though the whole story is written in third, per uh, written in third person, not in first person, nonetheless, I'm showing you a glimpse into Megan's mind, how she's apolitical and why and her thoughts about, you know, campaigning and politics in general. She's very apolitical. And, um, and if anything, if anything, um, you know, how do I put it? I just make use of the knowledge that I have, like how things work, you know, how the political structure works, how campaigns works, and 
and so forth and so on. And like I said, there are political overtones in the book, although it's certainly not a political book. It's a psychological thriller. Do you, do you have a, um, a subtext in this book as well? Or the whole series, like you said, you're going to be doing a series. Is there something that you want your, your character to uh, get across to people? Well, I don't have any overarching moral, um, you know, I don't have any morality, um, you know, how do I put it? You know, there, there isn't a, an overarching moral rationale behind my books. I always look at myself as this, you know, a literary entertainer. I'm not trying to write the great American novel like, say, John Irving and, and others. But I will tell you what, what Megan is looking for, and I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it's going to be the, the entire trilogy is going to be about her search for her real identity. You know, what she really was, who and what she was before her kidnapping, and this is going to be an ongoing process throughout the entire trilogy. Yeah. I, 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 do you have your trilogy planned when you do something like this, like in this particular case, or you've got kind of an idea of where you want to see her go over the three books, or is this something that you're just going to do as it comes? Well, it seems every time I write a book with new characters, new protagonists, I always intentionally leave open the possibility that this could be a standalone or it could be the beginning of a series. Before I finished The Ribbon of a Speaks in 2019, I realized that this is going to be a trilogy. You know, she's going to she's going to find out something that changes her entire life at the end of the book. And then she's going to continue exploring that in the second book. And then by the end of the third book, she's finally going to get some resolution. And she's going to find out exactly what the truth really is. That's an interesting concept, uh, the, the, the whole story. Where do you see yourself going at the end of a series like this? How do you, how do you plan on, without giving it away, I guess, how would you plan on ending it? Well, like I said, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but Megan is going to get the, the information of the facts that she's been looking for throughout the entire trilogy by the end of the third book. Um, the Ribbon Never Speaks, obviously, is the first entry in the series. The second one, in which I'm still working, is entitled Darkling, I Listen which actually begins the second that the last book ends. And she she goes back to, to Minnesota at the end of the first book, and then she goes back to Wisconsin because she really she made a horrible mistake, and now she's got to make some atonement. And she's going to go closer to the facts that she's looking for because she realizes, if not the actual facts of her life and her, her real identity, um, she knows that there's a certain gap in her knowledge. So by the second book, she gets somewhat closer to finding out what the, what the truth really is. And then by the third book, which I have a working title called Tableau, which she gets involved in a series of murders, she's going to actually find out at the end of that book just exactly, you know, what really happened prior to the age of 13 and, you know, who she really is. Do you have people in your life that you use to um, kind of look over the books and give their opinions on them before you decide to release them? Well, I don't usually make it a habit of using beta readers, but sometimes I do. I, I didn't do that with The Reverend Never Speaks. It was pretty much like a lot of my other novels. It was a solitary project. I write very monastically. You know, my, my, um, it's funny you should ask me that because as far as I know, every single person who has ever bought and read the book has been female. And it's, it's gotten a very positive feedback from the female reading demographic. Every single review ever written about the book was written by a woman. And, yeah, I will say sometimes I know them. They are my Facebook friends. I've given away a couple of copies. In fact, I gave away one copy to my landlady right before Christmas last year. 
but the feedback has been absolutely tremendous and it's been exclusively female as far as I know. I don't know of any guy who's actually read my book. It's just women. And I think they're attracted to the book because Megan McNamara is a very strong character and she prevails in the end. You know, it doesn't have a, you know, an ATA, but there is some resolution and she does, you know, wind up on top and she's a very strong character despite her character flaws. And despite the fact that she's laboring under a massive delusion, Nonetheless, she prevails somewhat at the end of the book. And I think that resonates a lot with female readers. What do you do um, to try and capture um, the voice of a female character like this? Well, I imagine you're talking about, you know, the narrative, the syntax. Um, yeah, like, like how, do you, how do you, you know, because, uh, you know, readers, um, and you're saying a lot of females read this so far that you've experienced, and they're very happy with it, and they think it's great and all that. So they must relate to it, so the character must be right on to them and stuff. But it must speak to them as females. So I'm just wondering what you use as an example to try and build that character, how a real female would be. You know, like what, what, what do you use? Other people you know, or is it just is it all just come out of the sky? Or how, how does that happen for you? Well, Megan doesn't have a real-life analog. Um and that includes Jamie Klaus because I don't know her personally, and I, she's still a child. She's not a grown woman yet. But it's it's just a matter of, like I said, getting to learn a character through a process that is very similar to getting to learn a real life person in the real world. You just have to fall into it, like like Edgar Allan Poe used to. He used to fall into his stories, discover his characters as he went along. It's the same thing with Megan Syntax. Now she's she's a hard ass, and she comes across as a hard ass in the beginning of the book. But over the course of the book, you see a psychological evolution taking place as the, the revelations start to pile up and as people she cares about get hurt. And then you see a gradual softening to the point where she actually ends up in the book as being very, very emotional. And then you find out exactly why at the end of the book. But there, there's no real-life template for, for Megan McNamara. She's just a character that I just created almost completely out of whole cloth. So, you know, she has a dark, trenchant sense of humor. And she, she doesn't take guff from anyone. And that includes people that are trying to, like, you know, stand in the way of her investigation into her own kidnapping, her parents' murder, the uh, the kidnappings and murders that take place in the fictional Fox County in which she's a deputy. You know, she doesn't she doesn't take anything like that from anybody. I and mean, she's, she's a pretty hard-nosed individual. I'm wondering, can can you hear uh, Megan? Can do you, do you hear her voice in your head when when you're writing, um, or uh, is, is there another way that you create dialogue? Usually, I don't hear a character's voice. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Look at my other series character, Scott Carson. Okay, I had his personality pretty much pegged from the moment I started writing the prologue for the first book in the Carson series, Town and the Alien. Not so much with Megan. Now I can visualize her voice because now I have an audiobook project and I have a hell of a book narrator who's bringing her to life. And so how did you choose that narrator? Like, how do you find one yourself? Well, you field auditions on ACX and you put up sample material, you know, whatever chapters you think would be representative of the book and the chapters that would best showcase the narrator's voice. So I put up the prologue in the first chapter on ACX sometime last winter, I believe it was December. And I feel that, oh my God, you should have heard some of the auditions I got. People saying words like foliage and this and that. I'm like, okay, next. And um, I finally got two auditions from two ladies in Wisconsin. Okay, because I was careful to say this book takes place in Wisconsin. And they had the requisite natural accents. And they were both very good. And I was ready to hire one or the other. 
And then some lady named Alex Nessier out of South Dakota submitted her own audition for the prologue and first chapter. And I was blown away. I mean, the other two ladies were very good at what they did. But Alex, she she brought the character to life in a way that I never dreamed possible. And plus, she thought of doing certain things during her narration that the others didn't even think about doing, like, say, differentiating between two voices. The book starts out between two teenage girls who are kidnapped, you know, years and years ago. And they're having a dialogue across a stone wall in, in the basement in which they're captured. And when Alex submitted her audition, I noticed right away that she actually differentiated between, you know, one girl and the other. So they didn't both sound alike. They sounded different. And that's something that she's been able to maintain throughout the entire narration. Now, there are some male characters, and she has to speak their lines too, but she knows how to differentiate between voices so you always know who's speaking and she is very good at what she does so i decided okay you're hired yeah it's real important to find a good narrator like that that makes the book come alive you know well it was the first this is my first foray into audiobooks so this is the first time i'd heard somebody other than myself speaking the narrative the dialogue and it's not until you actually do that when you when you hear the playback on the audio files they send you that you actually get a full sense of just exactly how much alive your work really is. And then you hear sometimes through the narration things that, you know, kind of land with a thud and you, you make the necessary adjustments. But Alex is so good that she really makes the character come alive in a way that I never dreamed possible. Now, when I was writing Megan's character, I was thinking, okay, if this ever gets turned into a movie, I can see Amy Adams doing the role because she's got the acting chops. She's the right age. She's got the, the red hair. But I never actually knew what a voice sounded like until Alex Messier sent me her audition. And I called her right up and I said, you got the job. You're hired. What can you start? You know, she's that good. Yeah, that's great when it comes together like that, you know. Um, so so when you listen to it now and you look back at this book, um, do you feel like it, uh, when you write a book like this, um, it actually changes how you go into part two, like how you're going to write the second part? Do you think your writing becomes different? I don't know about the writing becoming different, but I'm going to have a more vivid sense of what Megan sounds like. The second book, Darkling I Listen, forces her to go back to Wisconsin, specifically to Fox County, where she was a deputy. And she's no longer a deputy. She quits her job. That's not really that big of a spoiler, so I'm not afraid to say that. But she realizes at the end of the first book, she made a horrible mistake. And now she's got to go back to Fox County, Wisconsin, which was fictional. And she she tries to make amends. And then she gets sucked into something called the sisterhood, which is actually a star chamber. And it's made- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot of Native American women, as well as white women, and basically they pick up where the criminal justice system leaves off, and they, they take care of certain males who make Native women and girls disappear and she realizes that throwing her a lot with the sisterhood, the star chamber, is really the fastest path toward getting the guy that she needs to get, you see. So I, I don't see it changing the writing so much, but I'm going to have a more vivid sense of exactly what Megan sounds like, which is not necessarily a bad thing. How much research does it take you to do, uh, uh, put together a book like this? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I'm defined, you know, um, how, how much well, you know, the things like when you talk about uh, things like when you talk about the star chamber and you talk about these different aspects throughout a story, uh, um, how long does that, like, do you have to go out and, and figure these sort of things out? Like, even if you're trapped at home and doing internet work and stuff like that, um, like, how long did it take you to put together uh, book one here? Well, I do the writing and the research concurrently. You know, like I said in my last interview, I don't really believe in taking six months or a year off to do research and write notes before you write a word toward the, the book. So if I feel I need to research something, I'll do it. Now, I have a Facebook friend who lives in uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, which features prominently in an important um, chapter in the middle of the book. Her name is Amy Byers. And, you know, being a Wisconsin native, I asked her this and that, you know, what's the flora and fauna like? And you know, what's the nomenclature like? Like, how would a Wisconsinite say this or that or the other? So I, I did that, and she also led me to a book about some of the weirdness in Wisconsin. I went back in the Wisconsin death trip, which Megan makes frequent mention of in the book. And um, I, I've never written a book that took place in the Midwest. They tend to be either in New York or in Boston, especially in the 19th century. I'm, the funny thing is, I started running the River Never Speaks because I came across a literary agent's profile on the internet. And she said, I'm, I'm a sucker for any psychological thriller, especially if it takes place in my native Wisconsin. So I figured, okay, why not? So I wrote, I set the book. I didn't write the book for her, but I set the book in Wisconsin for this one agent. And you're the first person who's ever heard this. So, and I, when I finished the book, I sent her um, a, a book proposal for the book and I never heard back from her. And then I sent her a tickler email asking her, did you get my, my book? And no, so I guess she just passed on it and didn't think I was worth even a form letter. But it required some research into Wisconsin's history, its criminal history. I make frequent messages, uh, frequent uh, references to Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer and so forth and so on. And um, 
you know, I had to do research into, you know, what Native American tribes are, are prevalent in Wisconsin, which is why I decided to settle on the Ho-Chunk um, Lakota Sioux, which also feature very prominently in the book. So, you know, there was there was some research that had to be done, but not nearly as much as I would have to do if I was writing a historical thriller, you know? Right, right. Yeah, so it's, it's amazing because you want to do get things right, you know, you want to make sure everything's uh, fits to people and how they live. Well, know? I also had to know what I was talking about. My characters had to sound like they knew what they were talking about. So that's why when I when I started researching Wisconsin, modern-day Wisconsin, I found out they have 71 counties. Uh, the fictional Fox County is the 72nd county. It's somewhere in eastern Wisconsin near the Illinois border. And um, I also had to find out that they haven't had the death penalty since 1853, so nobody has ever been executed in Wisconsin since 1853. And, you know, you just have to know these things because now we live in the Internet age and people can fact check you on a dime because they have all this information literally at their fingertips. And if you're if you're wrong about something, they're going to let you know it. And that's just going to rob you of your credibility. And if you're a self-published author like me, your credibility and your talent are really all you have to talk, you know, to speak for you. It's certainly a, a, a new world with self-publishing and that certainly changed a lot. So, um mm-hmm. Do you like how the 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 it's gone with self-publishing and Amazon and stuff like that? Or well, it's got its um, advantages and drawbacks. It's got its pros and cons. Uh, like I said in my last interview with you, I, I keep I keep bringing up that old interview. But you asked me what I thought were the best or the worst aspects of self-publishing, and I said the best part is the democratized self-publishing, you know, and the worst part is it's democratized publishing <laughs> because there are a lot of people out there that should be writing books that shouldn't be writing books. And, you know, I'm not a snob, God knows, because I'm a self-published author myself, but at least I have a pretty firm sense of what needs to be done. You need to hire a copy editor. It wasn't until I hired a copy editor, her name is Tamara Crow. she lives in Beaumont, Texas, that I realized how many howlers I was actually publishing when I was still self-publishing without a copy editor. And I realized, my God, I'm making a lot of mistakes. And it wasn't until I started getting my corrected proofs back from Tamara a couple of years ago that I realized this how many typos I'm letting out there. And you also should know something about formatting, you know, so, you know, you, you have to know how to format your book in order for it to look good, especially in the paperback edition. And I also was smart enough to use the services of a graphic designer to do my covers. Now, his name is James Moore. He lives in Mobile, Alabama, and he's been doing covers for me for about six years now, and he does excellent work, excellent work. So if, if your book looks professional, if it has a good cover, and if they look at the free preview and they see that there are no typos and whatever they're, they're allowed to look at for free, then that's a, you know, that's a good start right there. But you have to be professional about it. And a lot of people just don't have that conscientiousness, I'm afraid, which is why, you know, a lot of publishers, the big five publishers, literary agents, bookstores, reviewers, you know, all the people that are plugged into the big five and the legitimate publishing business, they're engaged in a smear campaign against self-published authors like me. And they tell you, or they tell prospective readers, oh, you don't want to buy this brand X book by this anonymous author. You want to buy one of these fine books and one of our authors. And they tend to be big five authors more often than not. And that's really a, kind of a despicable smear campaign. But I, I hate to say it, but in some cases, it really is justified because there are, there are a lot of self-published books out there that maybe shouldn't have been written or, or published at least, you know? Yeah. No, oh, I agree. Yeah, there is. Um, now, the title of the book, where, where did that come from? 
I had to wrestle with that a little bit. I, I thought about, you know, the Reverend never tells, and then I said, nah, that doesn't really trip off the tongue. And I experimented for a couple of days with it. And then finally, I just decided on the Reverend never speaks. And it's a unique title. It's, as far as I know, the only book on Amazon with that title, so you can't confuse it with, with anyone else's book. Um, it, it was, it usually a title comes to me pretty quickly. If not, I, I have a, a knack for coming up with the right title, at least after one or two abortive attempts. You know, I use working titles like any other writers. But if I'm not completely happy with it, I'll keep thinking, okay, what, what should this book really be, be called? Because, you know, often the sales of a book depends on the title itself, you know. And I figured it, it's, it's evocative. It's, it sounds mysterious. And it, it worked for me, so I decided to stick with it. Yeah, it's important. Just like the cover, like it's important to choose a cover. What's your process for the cover? Well, sometimes I have an exact idea in mind, and I, I give my graphic designer, James Moore, that. And sometimes I don't have an idea, and I just tell him, let your creative juices flow. And often I'll help him out by, by finding, you know, copyright-free JPEGs for him. And um, sometimes they, they take they take shape, and we can nail a cover in like one or two days. Like the first project in which we ever worked together was for another historical thriller, My Gods of Our Fathers, which came out in 2015. And I had an exact idea of how I wanted the book to look. I found a wraparound cover um, of um, it's an 1850 map of Boston by Nathaniel Dearborn. And I found um, a, a photograph of an old Boston PD silver police badge. And I said, I want you to put this in the center. I want you to do the wraparound cover, you know, using just the map. I want you to do the title and my name and, and Trajan and do it three-dimensionally. We knocked it out in like six to eight hours. You know, God, I wish they could all be that easy, but they're not. Sometimes they, they take work. But um, sometimes I have an exact idea of what I want. Sometimes I don't. Like the second book in the Megan McNamara trilogy, Darkling, I Listen, I had a pretty exact idea of what I wanted, and I gave James the um, the images. And um, we knocked that out in a day, and it was absolutely perfect. I mean, I can't wait to see what it looks like in physical form. But the reason I, I, I chose that um title is because it's a line from John Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. No, no, Ode, Ode to a Nightingale. And once again, it sounds mysterious, it sounds evocative, and I picked it for a reason. Megan has got an alter ego by the second book. So she's essentially talking to herself, and you'll find out why when, when you read the first and the second book. Wow. So, did you, you know, the, the idea that you had, the image that you had for the whole book, um, when you were just putting it together at the beginning, and how it looks now, how it is at the end, did it did it work out kind of and go to the place that you thought it would when you were starting the idea? Not at all. Not at all. See, like I said, writing a book like this, when you're going by, when you're inspired by a newspaper story or an article or so forth, like in this case, you know, poor little Jamie Clough, it's a matter of asking yourself two questions, what if and what next. It's, it's terms, in terms of what next, I one great way to get the reader to keep turning the pages is to end each chapter in a little bit of a cliffhanger, some of them bigger cliffhangers than others, or they're called dramatic spikes. And I didn't have any idea how I was going to end this book, but it was more about the journey than the destination, you see. And I, I had no idea it was going to end the way it did, but it made perfect sense when I finished reading the book. It's like, Again, that ancient sculptor finding the statue under all that rock, under all that granite. And 
you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing when it works. And you see, I'm a panther by nature. You know, I write my stories like Edgar Allan Poe. You know, he said he used to, quote, unquote, fall into his stories. I do pretty much the same thing. I never work according to an outline. And with The River Never Speaks, it ended in a completely different way than I, I would have expected. In fact, I didn't actually have a denouement in mind when I began writing it on Red Sox opening day in 2019. But on Red Sox opening day, before I went out to see the Red Sox at a local pub, I decided to dash off the prologue. I went back to it the next day. I reread it, and I really liked what I read. I said, okay, I can work with this. And then that day I wrote chapter one, and then I, I finished the first draft in like four months flat, which is pretty rapid for me. Well, I was wondering, um, have any of your characters, because, you know, you talk about how um, you're a pantser, and I'm just wondering, do, do your characters um, kind of take over the plot? Have they ever rebelled against uh, the plot that has been in your mind or the, the story that you're trying to create as, uh, as you're writing the book? Oh, God, yeah. God, yeah. I mean, I rarely have, <laughs> I rarely have a plot in mind. I rarely have a denouement in mind. But with, um, say, with Hollywood Land, when I started writing that, I call it my pandemic project because I started it in late March of 2020, and I was drafting it out until December that year. I had an exact idea of how I wanted to start the book. It, it takes place at exactly the same moment that Tata Demelian ends in, at a certain point in the penultimate chapter. And then I had a location in mind of how I wanted, where I wanted the denouement to take place, which was the Hollywood sign. Originally, it was Hollywood Land which to me struck me as incredibly dramatic. You can't possibly do any better than that. But everything else in between, and it's like nearly a 200,000-word novel, everything else in between was a spontaneous journey, you know. With with certain characters, you know, even if I have a certain plot twist in mind or whatever, the characters tell me, no, you don't want to go there, you want to go here, and then you just have to follow them. It's basically just watching characters act out and writing out the incident report, you know. The characters are like they're like benevolent but bad house guests. You know, they they never know when to leave, <laughs> and they do whatever they want. You know, so you know, I would say yes, except that I never really have a plot or a denouement in mind because I, I'm a panther. I just fall into it. So it must be really important where you actually write. Uh, it, it, things influence you then when you're if you go to a certain place or see something or smell something or hear something or you're around certain people. It must kind of um, influence you to write certain things. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I think it was T.S. Eliot who um, who said that you know sometimes all you need is a certain word or a certain smell to inspire a poem. The same thing applies to fiction. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the kind of writer where I look at things from a writer's perspective. Right? I look at interesting things. I read true crime stories. I hear snatches of conversation that that just stick in my mind for some reason. And sometimes it'll be grist in my mill. Sometimes not. But and often, you know, a lot of writers, I'm not going to name any names, of course, they forget that we have five senses. So it's not enough to tell the, um, the reader what the, what the characters or, or the character or the protagonist sees and hears. There are three other senses. There's also the tactile sense, there's touch, there's taste. And if they apply, if they help describe the scene more fully and in a more sensual way, then why not do it, you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, it's, 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 it's a strange process, you know. Um, so now, have you got a website now, or if you, how, do you, how do you set up for people to come find you? Well, I'm on Facebook, as I said, so I, I have a Facebook wall. I have um, actually two author pages. One is dedicated to Scott Carson. The other one is dedicated to Megan McNamara. But um, I also 
uh, moderate um, uh, a book group on, on Facebook called Book Whores. <laughs> it's gotten a little bit of flack, but most people, <laughs> more, more people like the title than, than dislike it. And, you know, when I have, you know, like news to impart or a new release, and I'll, I'll put up the link and so forth, I'll try not to dominate the site because I have rules. You're only allowed to post, you know, book-related, you know, promotions like twice a day, although it's unlimited on Sundays. And I, I pick an author of the month, and I, I keep it lively, and I keep it, you know, informative and entertaining. But um, as for an actual website, I really don't have a lot of time to do that because I also um, I blog politically, as I said. So my, my days are kind of full between, you know, doing copy edits on previous novels that I'd already issued that I'm getting ready for reissue, and then I do my political blog. And, and then, you know, there's the things you have to do in the meat world to keep your, your household running, you know, paying bills and doing food shopping and blah, blah, blah and all that. So, you know, I don't have a website at all, but if you go to, if you go to Facebook and to look up book horrors, you'll, you'll see a hit from my group. Okay. Well, we'll definitely uh, link that up on our website too. So people can find it and find you and stuff like that. Do you, um, do you do a lot of interacting with, with, with writers or, or readers or anything like that yourself? Oh, God, yeah. you kind of stay oh. away? You do oh no, no, no. I'm very heavily embedded in the writing community and Facebook. That's, that was my main reason for getting back on Facebook in January 2017, although it quickly got taken over by, you know, politics. We all know what happened in January of 2017. That was the day the Mordor opened up. But uh, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> politics. But, um, yeah, I'm very heavily embedded in the writing community. In fact, for the last going on four years running, I've been doing um, an author of the month. You know, I do an author of the week on, um, on book horrors, and that gives the person who's the honoree um, the, the ability to put up, you know, writing-related links and book-related links and so forth, um, you know, unlimited for, like, the next week. But I do an author of the month, which is something completely different, and that comes with a 15-question interview. And except for when I interviewed Wendy Corsi Staub last summer, and I did that for a reason, I do that primarily for other indie and, and or self-published authors like me to help elevate awareness for their work. And uh, I made an exception for Wendy Corsi Staub last week, um, last last year, and she, she, I did it because number one, she's a real sweetheart. She's a she's a big time author. I'm sure you've heard of her, but she's also a very big sweetheart, and she's been nothing but supportive of my work. And um, after the interview, actually, she sent me two of her books, and I sent her two of my books. The reason why I decided to profile her in violation of my own rules to do just self-published authors was because she was going to go to BoucherCon, and then she just decided the council at the last minute because we still had the pandemic. She didn't want to, you know, take any chances. And then when Wendy made the announcement on Facebook, the three judges that were, they were in charge of BoucherCon, they said, okay, we're just going to close down the whole thing. We're not going to do this in New Orleans this year. We're going to like retool for Minneapolis next year. So the thing is, Wendy had two launches coming up, one in November and the other this January. And this would have been a great opportunity for her to, to publicize her books. But then she robbed herself of that chance by not, just not going about your con. She just didn't want to take any chances with the coronavirus. So I, I asked her, you know, will you be my author of the month? I mean, I, I'm not about your con. I can't replace them, but I can do what I can to help elevate awareness for your two upcoming releases. And it was a great interview. I even expanded it to a 20-question format, and it worked out great. And I got more feedback than any of my other my other interviews for the previous three years. So that, that's what I do. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. It's good. It's it's networking. You know, it's it helps build the community. So, 
Uh, it's fascinating. So, so what what's next? You're going to do the other two parts of the trilogy, or have you got anything else in the works, or just that? Well, right now, like I said, I'm putting the finishing touches on the re-edit of um, of our, another novel. It was actually the second novel that I self-published back in 2011. It's called The Toy Cop, and it's a contemporary hostage negotiation thriller. And I'm putting the touches to that. And when I do that, that'll be my seventh and final novel. And then I can get back to work on, on, on new stuff. You know, getting back to Wendy Corsi's stock for a minute, she promised me sometime last year or early this year that if I send her something new that's never been published and isn't connected to any series that I've self-published, she'll pass on whatever I send her to her literary agent and maybe one of her um, one of her editors, maybe a William Morrow or one of her other publishers. So I'm going to be working on that. I, I have most of the the second book, Darkling I Listen, and, and the Megan McNamara saga written. But right now the plot is in kind of a little bit of a spaghetti, so I'm going to have to like unsnarl it. Um, I haven't written a, a word toward the third novel, Tableau, although that's going to be fascinating, and that's going to require some research into um, in, into different things. But you know, I am very heavily embedded in the writing community on Facebook, and some people just have certain skills that I don't have, and I can pick their brains. Like I have another friend named Tony Keith. She, um, she used to be an insurance investigator, and that's what Megan is at the beginning of the third book, Tableau. So I'm going to have to learn the ins and outs of how an insurance investigator works and you know how they do their job and you know, some of the bizarre things that Tony found during her career as an insurance investigator. And there's going to be some research involved. And I know other people that are doctors and nurses and lawyers, and you know I can pick their brains. So that's part of the reason why I network with writers. But it's also, I admit, it's, there's a lot of self-aggrandizement involved. And, you know, I... I I stay embedded in the writing community on Facebook just to elevate awareness of my own work. But I also give back and I help other people elevate awareness for their work as well. So it's not just a one-way street with me. Well, yeah, that's the way to do it, you know. That's it, it, more fulfilling that way, you know. Get, get more out of it, mm -hmm. I think. But uh, anyway, it's been a great conversation. We've enjoyed you being on the show again. Well, thank um, you. The book, we were, the book we're talking about is The, the Never... The River Never Speaks, and right. our guest has been the author, Robert Crawford. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. Bye-bye. Thanks, Robert. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good morning. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.